Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Terry Adkins didn't believe in boundaries. He turned old radiators and railroad stakes into art. He made videos. He explored the North Pole. He obsessed over Dante's Divine Comedy. He sought to make, quote, music as physical as sculpture ought to be and sculpture as ethereal as music is. Music was one of Adkins' central themes. He played the guitar and alto saxophone and later made his own musical instruments. He assembled four of what he called acrophones from parts of trombones and sousaphones and segments of cast brass. They were 18 feet long. They were sculpture, but they could also be played, as Adkins proved in 1996 with a piece called The Last Trumpet. And that's The Last Trumpet by Terry Adkins. The piece will be performed here in June, and the acrophones are only a small piece of the new exhibit at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, a major look back at the career of Terry Adkins. It's titled Terry Adkins Resounding. It opens this Friday. And joining us today to talk about it is Stephanie Weisberg. She's an associate curator at the Pulitzer Arts Foundation and also the curator of this show. So Stephanie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that piece we played just a snippet of just now, The Last Trumpet, it's one of Terry Adkins' best-known works. What made it such a sensation? Well, it does a lot of what you described in your really great introduction to Adkins' work in that it combines music and sound and sculpture in a very um, visceral way. It's as you mentioned, made of four instruments that are of Atkins' own invention called the acrophone. And he made this piece shortly after the death of his father to celebrate his uh, father's life. And it's an incredible, incredibly moving performance to see members of Atkins' performance group, the Lone Wolf Recital Corps, which he founded in 1986, performing these objects which he didn't himself know could be played when he originally constructed them. And he only found out later. Exactly. So he has a, he had a very improvisational practice, which relates back to his history as a musician and his training uh, in jazz in particular. And I think that comes through in a work like this, which through its development evolved and included a process of discovery for Atkins himself over the course of uh, the work. And as someone who's seen Atkins perform this work live myself, it was an um, incredibly emotional experience and um, w very moving. And one of the things that really inspired me initially to think about um, an exhibition of his work. And there's so many disparate pieces that have come together for this exhibition. Was it hard to track down all these things and get the rights to use all of them and, and make this all happen? Well, so, to some extent, yes, and that's a challenge that we have with any exhibition really is traveling across the country, um, visiting sites uh, really in different countries and trying to get a sense, first of all, of what this person's practice is, what has been shown already. A lot of, a few of the works that we're including in the exhibition, like The Last Trumpet, are very iconic examples of his work. But then there are also lesser known examples that 
involved a lot of research to be able to track down and to be able to coordinate bringing into the space. For example, his own collection of musical instruments and books and memorabilia that he lived with and collected throughout his lifetime across the world. So we're really excited to be able to make that happen, to bring these objects together and to help demonstrate how they reflect on his own practice and the relationship between the objects he lived with and the objects he made. And he was such a collector. And, and reading your essay about him that accompanies this exhibit, I was, I was very struck by the fact that this wasn't a hoarding sort of collecting, that he had very specific things that he was doing as he gathered up all these different examples of a type of thing. What was he up to with that? So as you mentioned, you know, the collecting for him started at a very um, early point in his career with Dante's Divine Comedy, which (laughs) was a book that was incredibly inspiring to him that he encountered in his eighth grade Latin class. And And just connected (laughs) with this thing. Yeah, exactly. And over the course of his lifetime, he collected dozens of copies of Divine Comedy. So not only would he collect a single example of an object, but he would collect iteratively over and over and over again um, in a process of accumulating uh, many copies of a single object or instrument. And in some way, you have to wonder, was this a process for him of trying to better understand these objects by living with many of them? There's also a famous work by Atkins called Infinity, in which he... the work was initiated when he um, stole a copy of John Coltrane's album Infinity from a record store and for the rest of his life decided that he should do penance for for this um, small um, offense. And so he, every time he encountered the record throughout the rest of his life, he collected and bought um, a an example of the record. So we're showing these records as well in the exhibition. It's a trunk full of 75 um, copies of John Coltrane's Infinity. So that's an example of the way that collecting bridged both his personal life and his practice and ended up becoming his longest running artwork that he produced. And would he have characterized this as his longest running artwork? Or is that you looking at this going, hey, this has crossed the line from being a collection. This is actually art. No, he he describes it that way. So this is actually a work of art by Atkins. And one of the things I'm excited to be able to show alongside this that has not been shown before is a series of drawings that are related called infinity drawings. He made them twice a day, every day, and they're based on a musical uh, diagram made by John Coltrane. So they visually mirror the record and they also relate once again to this practice of collecting but also repetition and ritual that was so prevalent throughout his life and career. And I believe you you wrote in this essay um, about him that um, Infinity was his first use of found materials. What were some of the others that he ended up incorporating in his work? Yeah, that is one of the most fascinating things about Atkins and his career and that make his works so engaging to experience. He had a longstanding practice of working with materials that he encountered on site. Oftentimes, as he was traveling throughout the United States in artist residencies, he would root his practice in those sites by engaging with found materials. So, for example, um, uh, one of the groups of work that we're showing is called Towering Steep. It's from 2003 and was constructed all of materials that were found in um, an abandoned uh, 
textile manufacturing hmm. factory. Of all things to get access right. to. That's fascinating. <laughs> so in, in that group of works alone is our works constructed from rooster feathers, old radiators, um, incense sticks, rattles. As you mentioned earlier, there are also railroad stakes and other works, sousaphones, bells, uh, many, many instruments. So it really becomes an overwhelming sensory experience that is uh, very diverse and incredibly engaging to encounter. He was also interested in some historic figures, um, ones who maybe didn't get the acclaim they deserve. I'm thinking of Matthew Henson, and in my getting up to speed on, on Terry Adkins, I think of all the stories about him, this is the one I, I just thought was just amazing. It just said so much about his curiosity. Who was Matthew Henson? Well, Matthew Henson was the first explorer to reach the North Pole. He was an African-American man and was largely uncredited for... We never hear about this, this guy. Yeah, exactly. And... Uh, Atkins had an ongoing practice, as you say, of exploring the legacies and histories of people who were really larger-than-life figures but did not get their historical due. So he followed in the steps of Matthew Henson and traveled to the North Pole in one of his final <laughs> works that was actually part of an unfinished series um, that was ongoing right before he passed away in 2014. And what else was he intending for that series? Do we know? That's a great question. Um, I do think there is some documentation, but I'm not w aware of the full extent of what he was imagining for the series. And the idea of an artist going to the North Pole, I, you know, it sounds like Matthew Henson is somebody we should be talking about, but he really took things to just the furthest degree. When he got to the North Pole, was this for a, a, a performance or, or what did he do when he was there? Well, he produced a video in part. So, um, you know, his practice involved traveling to these places, not just as um, sort of um, as a part of his research mm -hmm. into these figures. So he was following in the footsteps. He and then he produced a um, video work and a sculpture that was were based on those experiences. And that's a nice part of um, that particular body of work and his work in general is that it bridges many different media and he synthesizes the story of a particular historical figure or moment through a real range of um, different modes of engaging visually. He was also really interested in um, some music figures. I know he did some portraits and he also explored some of their lives. Who were, who were some of the people that he focused on? Yeah, so he did, he had as I mentioned earlier, one of the his earliest inspirations is John Coltrane. Also, one of the longest-running influences for him was Jimi Hendrix. Mm. Um, in our exhibition in particular, we have works that relate to uh, blues singer Bessie Smith. So there's a work titled Mute, which is a video piece in the exhibition, which features footage of Smith singing uh, um, St. Louis Blues from the 1929 film St. Louis Blues. And he's edited the film and spliced it to create this um, soundless meditation on Bessie Smith mm. and who she was as a singer. It's part of a much larger series of work that's dedicated to her contributions to blues music. And then also in the exhibition is a body of work titled Towering Steep, as I mentioned earlier, that follows four blues musicians, um, Lead Belly, Blind Lemon Jefferson, Robert Johnson and Blind Willie Jefferson, and uh, and um, 
each of these four musicians' contributions to Texas blues music and Southern blues music. And then he also explores how that connects with the Great Migration and movement Of African Americans coming up after the Civil War. Exactly. Moving northward for greater opportunities. Um, And this occurred over several decades throughout the 20th century. So we mentioned his interest in these figures who maybe didn't get the acclaim they deserved. And I'm wondering, within the art world, um, would you put him in that category? Or is this just something where those of us outside this world might not be familiar with him yet? No, I think that's a really fair question. I certainly think that he deserves, and he has in recent years gotten more attention, but he deserves um, quite a bit of due for the contributions that he made to sculpture and performance within the field of contemporary art, and also for the um, impact that he had on a following generation of artists through his decades-long work as a professor and a mentor. So I, I do think that he deserves increased attention, attention, and there's room to continue exploring and highlighting aspects of his career, which are not widely known. And that's one of the exciting things about being able to organize this exhibition at the Pulitzer is bringing together bodies of work, not only that he's been celebrated for and that people might be more familiar with, like The Last Trumpet, which you played a clip of earlier, but also aspects of his practice, which are really completely underrepresented. So for St. Louisans who are encountering this guy for the first time are going to come to the Pulitzer and check this out, what would you recommend would be the one thing they want to make sure they see? Within the exhibition Mm -hmm. in particular? Well, I think our main gallery will be really exciting for people to encounter for the first time. So as they first walk into that space, they will encounter two of his most important and monumental works, The Last Trumpet, as you mentioned earlier, and another piece titled Muffled Drums, which is a towering stack of bass drums that he collected and constructed into a floor-to-ceiling sculpture that is incredibly powerful to encounter and also happens to connect to the history of St. Louis. As I mentioned, one of the works in the exhibition, this is the work that connects to the 1917 East St. Louis riots. Mm. Um, So it has a very, um, it's very visually impactful, but it also has a very deep, important, resonant meaning that still feels relevant today. So So it sounds like people won't be able to miss these when they walk into that that main gallery. Absolutely not, yes. (laughs) So this exhibit, this is Terry Adkins Resounding, and it opens this Friday. Exactly, yes. All right. Well, Associate Curator Stephanie Weisberg of the Pulitzer Arts Foundation, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And there's a lot more information about this on the Pulitzer's website. We're actually going to go out of this segment with a piece that inspired Terry Adkins. It's on the playlist for the Pulitzer for this show, um, and it's called Crossroad Blues. It's by Robert Johnson. Um, We need to take a quick break. Coming up next, we'll look at Bissell Theater's Murder Mysteries. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7. 7 KWMU.